Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. And a very pleasant good evening to our listeners. And welcome to That's Truth. I am Augustine Erskine, and along with me, we have Pastor David Murphy, and we are here hosting the program tonight. I do trust that you'll be able to stay with us for the entire program, and that you will stay with us and be blessed and encouraged from the truths we'll be sharing on the program tonight. And the topic we'll be covering tonight is why we believe the Bible is the Word of God. Why we believe the Bible is the Word of God. That's the topic we'll be covering tonight on That's Truth. And just before we begin, I would like to share with you two passages of Scripture from the Word of God. First, it's taken from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and that should be verses 16 and 17. The Bible said, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And also Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21 says, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. These are two verses that's talks about the inspiration of the Word of God. But just before we continue, let me say a very pleasant good evening to Pastor Murphy. Pastor Murphy, good evening. Good evening, sir. Just like to um, let you introduce to the listeners, let them know that you're here. Well, I appreciate that. And I want to thank the listeners for taking the chance, uh, allowing us to be in their home this evening and hope that um, we provide some information that is profitable in, in relation to Scripture. Okay, thank you very much. And just let me make a short introduction here. If man is to know God, or anything other than human speculation about God, that knowledge must come from God. Through special revelation, God has made himself known to certain people at different times and places. In the past, God has spoken with an audible voice. He has made himself known in the past by visions, dreams, miracles, signs, and occasionally in appearances called theophanies. God has revealed himself fully in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God incarnate. He has further revealed himself in written form in the 66 books of the Bible, the Holy Scriptures. 
It is these holy scriptures that give proper understanding of the revelation seen in creation. It is these holy scriptures that have recorded the revelation of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The holy scriptures are therefore the written revelation of God to his creation, the word of God. So that's our introduction as we try to cover the topic tonight, why we believe the Bible is the word of God. Pastor Murphy, how can we know that the Bible is the word of God? First, let me say to the the audience that uh, when it comes to the matter of proof, uh, we cannot prove the Bible is the word of God that you can prove that oxygen and hydrogen combine and create water. We cannot uh, observe it. We cannot repeat uh, an experiment to prove that the Bible is the word of God. Like any other matter relating to history, uh, any time we're dealing with any aspect of history, it is based on evidence. So all we can do um, is to look at the evidence, weigh the evidence, and then try to substantiate whether the evidence confirms or premise that the Bible is the Word of God. Um, this is the process that we use in our law courts, and it is based on the preponderance of evidence that supports the, the, the proposition, uh, and then we come to some kind of a decision in respect to these matters. That's the same thing when it comes to the Scriptures. Uh, we know that the Bible is the Word of God because of certain evidences, and there are several of them that I would just like to draw to uh, your attention tonight, and I hope that this would help to bolster your faith and confirm your confidence in Scripture. To my mind, one of the uh, greatest evidence, I call it the, uh, the greatest confirmatory evidence that we have today, is the testimony of Christ. Uh, I don't think anybody who's listening, who is aware of Scripture, reads the Scripture, understands the Scripture, uh, would can never doubt that Christ authenticated the Bible uh, in, in various ways. Uh, he confirmed that the Bible is the Word of God. Uh, he believed in the Mosaic author of the Scriptures. He quotes that in Matthew, uh, John chapter 5, Luke chapter 20. Uh, he uh, quoted Isaiah and credited the first section of Isaiah, the second section of Isaiah, to the prophet Isaiah. The reason why I'm mentioning that is because higher critics say that there's two Isaiahs, but our Lord said there's one Isaiah. Uh, he accepted the, the prophecies of Daniel. Uh, he also established the authority of Scripture and uh, the reliability of Scripture. He said the Scriptures must be fulfilled. He talks about the finality of Scripture. He, in his temptations in Matthew chapter 4, uh, the final word was that it is written. It is written. It is written. He talked about the sufficiency of Scripture uh, in Luke chapter 16 when the guy in, in Hades and hell is pleading for a witness. He said they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they don't need a final witness more than Scripture. It, the finality of Scripture is established. And then he talked about the indestructibility of Scripture. He says heaven and earth shall pass away, but the Word of God will not, not pass away. Uh, he talks about the inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, he says sanctify thy truth, truth, sanctify thy truth, thy truth, thy word is truth. And of course, um, he talks about the infallibility of Scripture in John chapter 10 when he says the Scriptures cannot be broken. So when you look at uh, a witness or testimony as to whether or not the Scripture is the Word of God, the premier person you look to is Christ. If you believe that Christ is God, that Christ is the Messiah, that He is the uh, second person within the divine trinity, uh, you must believe that He's infallible. You must believe that He's omniscient. He knows, and uh, once he puts his stamp of approval on the Scriptures at the Word of God, for a Christian, that should be the absolute finality on this matter. 
So I think one of the great witnesses to the Bible as the Word of God is a testimony and the witness of Christ uh, on this matter. But there are other uh, witnesses that we can call the attention to uh, in relation to this matter. T- take the idea of fulfilled prophecy. Uh, it's amazing when uh, one studies the Bible. Pastor Murphy, sure. just before you go on, you know, Jesus, we believe him to be very God, the second person in the Godhead. And if he refers to the scriptures as the word of God, mm-hmm. why should anyone doubt it? I, I have a problem. Uh, I think modern Christianity, to a great extent, is a farce. I think we have people in the pulpit who really don't believe the Bible. Uh, I think that we are more concerned about being relevant to the age in which we live. I, I really think it is one of the great uh, indications of what is called the final oral apostasy. I think we're in the final phase. I think this is a terminal generation. And I think men have gone away from the truth. Uh, and I find that that is what is causing this, this, this chaotic condition in relation to morality. Uh, that's why we have gay pastors. That's why we have uh, the endorsement of same-sex marriage. Uh, this is why we have uh, the, the, the Christians in America who support abortion. Uh, it's unconscionable that anyone be a true born-again believer who takes the Bible seriously to embrace any of these practices. So I, I think there's a lot of people who are claiming to be Christians, a lot of pastors who are claiming to be pastors and men of God, but I really think that we are in the hour of apostasy, and that is why we have such deviation from Scripture and why we're finding so many different views on Scripture. There's only one correct interpretation of the Bible. Only one correct. There cannot be two interpretations that are correct. There can only be one correct interpretation. Now, there may be many interpretations about Scripture, but there's only one correct interpretation. And what's important for us is to make sure that we have the correct interpretation. So I, I, have, I find it problematic, almost incredible to believe that anyone can be a true Christian and uh, doubt that the Bible is God's word when the master himself uh, endorsed it and, and, and himself said that the scriptures cannot be, be broken. Then heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. I think that's a word of finality in terms of the belief that this is the word of God. And those who don't hold to that position should do the decent thing. And that is find themselves out of the church and perhaps go and join another social club, but they really don't belong within the Christian church. Thank you very much, Pastor Murphy. And we have a question very early in the program tonight. And this is a WhatsApp from Virginia. You'd like to have it at this time, Pastor Murphy? Go right ahead. Okay, here's the question. Did all the writers of the Bible knew that they were writing the Word of God? Do all the writers of the Bible knew that they were writing the Word of God? Well, we don't have, I mean, I, I don't have any record anywhere where any of them suggested that they didn't know they were writing or they knew that they were writing. That is not the material problem. What we have got to establish is that clearly uh, God is a God who communicates. He's given man the capacity to, 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 uh, to communicate with man. He's given man the, the capacity to speech, to speak. Uh, a God uh, who has given man this gift of communication, it should become obvious that he would want to communicate with man. And, uh, but we've got to remember something else about this God. This God is not only a God who communicates, but this is a holy God that, uh, for us, we find it difficult uh, to understand this whole concept of holiness, that w- the, the Scriptures tell us that we can't even be in the presence of God or we be consumed. The, the concept of divine holiness is uh, one of those concepts that is hard for us to conceive. 
Uh, and that is why we've got to understand a holy God who wants to communicate with man, he cannot communicate with man directly because man is a sinful being and his very nature is corrupt. So he has chosen in his sovereignty to communicate with man through propositional truth. And that propositional truth has been given in the Word of God. So he has chosen and selected men uh, under divine inspiration uh, to give us the Scriptures. He has superintended the whole process to ensure that what they wrote is what he wanted us to receive. Uh, this uh, is our position. Uh, I think it can be supported from the, the, the evidence. And uh, But I do not know for sure that anybody really sat down and knew what they were written. I think when Paul was writing his epistles, Paul was writing to the churches. But again, coming back to Scripture, um, the, the, the Testament Scripture is this, that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That word moved, by the way, is an interesting word. It's a ship being borne along. So clearly you have the superintendent work of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, directing those people uh, as they were writing these epistles. Uh, Timothy said that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That word means God breathed. Uh, so whatever they wrote is what God intended. And it should not be strange to us that God would want to communicate with us or that God has the power to superintend uh, documents to be given to us and to ensure that there was no error in there. Uh, it is within God's purview to do that, and that's exactly what we believe God has done. So we take, for instance, um, many a times in the Scriptures, these writers, when they were writing, they say, the word of God came to, to me. me. And Ezekiel also said, the very express word of God came unto me. Paul said that what he declares is the word of God. Yeah. So I believe they have a knowledge. It was not, nothing out of the ordinary. It was something extraordinary, supernatural. Mm -hmm. Because they, most of the... Scripture, they, they claim that is the Word of God. Almost, well, all the writers, you go back to the Old Testament, Moses, say, and the Word of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think over, I think um, there's a figure given that over, uh, I think it's 1,100 times you have the expression, uh, either thus saith the Lord, the Lord, Lord came unto me, uh, etc. Uh, clearly, in the Old Testament, uh, those prophets knew clearly that God had given them a particular message. But remember that in the New Testament, uh, a lot of Paul's epistles were people, uh, churches were in situations where they had problems and wrote the Apostle Paul, and, and Paul would write in them to answer those particular questions. And uh, the Apostle Paul would uh, re remind them that what he wrote was not just human tradition, that actually this is what the Lord had told him. He said uh, in the book of Galatians that he had received by revelation the gospel that he was preaching. Behind the men uh, and their writings was the superintending work of the Holy Spirit. God directed them to write these epistles and, and uh, ensuring that what we needed uh, would be given to us and to ensure that the truth that he wanted us to know is exactly what we've got today. So we can be assured that both in the Old Testament and the New Testament that we have the Word of God. Okay, you were referring to how many times it is said that these statements... Like, now the word of the Lord spake to Moses. Statesmen like, um, the word of the Lord came expressly to me. Has occurred about 3,800 times in the Bible. So that is strong evidence of the scripture itself to say that it is the word of God. And as we continue, Pastor Murphy, you were um, getting into the different ways that we can know that the Bible is the word of God. Yeah. So if you'd like to continue... Yeah, let me just follow up on, on that, because I mentioned that the 
uh, greatest confirmatory, confirmatory evidence, basically, is the, the testimony of Christ in relation to Scripture. Uh, but let's take the other matter like it's of great importance, the matter of fulfilled prophecy. Uh, there are hundreds of prophecies that have been fulfilled, and there can be no dispute about those prophecies. Uh, J. Barton Payne uh, has a book called The Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecies, and he has identified 1,817 predictions in the Bible, 1,239 in the Old Testament, and 578 in the New Testament. It's interesting that when you consider, for example, the Lord's first advent, there are numerous prophecies that were fulfilled and written hundreds of years before our Lord came. Uh, we can talk about the virgin birth that was recorded in the book of Isaiah uh, and confirmed in the book of uh, Matthew. We can talk about the fact that the very place in which he would be born, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, uh, compare that with Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 to 6. And remember that Micah is an 8th century prophet. We could talk about the Messiah's ancestry, that he would be the seed of Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to 3, and then it's fulfilled in Matthew chapter 1. He would also be of the tribe of Judah, uh, Genesis chapter 49, verse 1, and Luke chapter 3. He was also going to be of the house of David, Second Samuel chapter seven fifteen, Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 22. Uh, we can go on and again and again, or repeat again and again, that in our Lord's first advent, um, uh, it is said that almost 200 prophecies were fulfilled in regard to his first advent. But it's not limited uh, to his first advent. Uh, I'm not aware, I'm not sure if the audience is aware that the book of Daniel, chapter 9, had given you the exact year that the Messiah would be killed. Uh, that's a prophetic word. It's worth studying. You'll find out that the exact year that he would die, it was given. There are other uh, predicted prophecies that we, we can talk about. Uh, we can talk about him going into the, the temple, um, in Matthew, Malachi chapter 1, verse 1, and Matthew chapter 21. Uh, we could talk about his anointing of the Holy Spirit, um, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, and Matthew chapter 3. We can talk about he would have a herald that would precede him, a voice of the Lord crying in the wilderness, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and Matthew chapter 3, verse uh, 1 to 3. Uh, we could talk about his crucifixion, uh, that he would be rejected, a man of sorrows. Uh, we can talk about his suffering, his death, uh, we can talk about his hands being pierced, his side being pierced. Uh, we can talk about casting lots uh, for his garments. All of these are prophecies that we find fulfilled in Scripture. But it even goes beyond that. In the book of Daniel chapter 2, you have the whole course of Gentile history recorded in chapter 2 and elaborated in chapter 7 and in chapter 9. Uh, so there, there are so many prophecies. We can spend a whole program just simply elaborating on biblical prophecies uh, that were fulfilled, predicted and fulfilled. Uh, and that should be substantial evidence to indicate that the Bible is the Word of God. I'm not too sure if the audience would want me to elaborate any further, but I want to point out one prophecy that is being advised of just hold a minute. We have a call of Pastor Murphy. Pastor Murphy? Yes, please. Good night to you, Mr. Listeners. Good night, sir. It's not a question, I'm just going to make a comment, because the first time I tune into this program, right? Okay. So I'm going to make a short comment. Um, being inspired by the Holy Ghost and the Word of God, I'm saying to you tonight that the sound is very on track of what you're saying, scripturally speaking, okay? Thank you. So I call to compliment you for your explanation. Um, the, um, the way the scriptures are written by the inspiration of God. Holy men were given the inspiration to write the scriptures. So I want to commend you so far for tonight as a minister that you're right on track. God bless. Thank you. Thank you. It is um, quite amazing. Uh, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 44 and verse 2, uh, 
it is predicted that the gate, the east gate, would be closed, uh, and it will not be, be open until the Messiah returns a second time. It is fascinating that in 1943, uh, the Sultan Suleiman, uh, the Magnificent, closed that gate and walled it up, and it has never been opened since. But Ezekiel had prophesied it would be blocked up, the east gate, and the only time that gate would be open again is when the Messiah returns. So it's an amazing prophecy. Uh, one other one that comes to mind very quickly is the fact that the prophet Isaiah, uh, in Isaiah chapter 11, uh, said that Israel would return to the, the, the land of Palestine. Now, Israel was in exile for 2,000 years. And never in the history of the world has a nation that was not in existence for 2,000 years uh, been revived. But yet the, the prophets had said that Israel would return to the promised land. And Israel became a nation in 1948. In some people's lifetime, you witnessed the fulfillment of prophecy that was given 800 years ago. And of course, uh, Jerusalem was returned to Israel in 1956 for the first time in 2,000 years. But all of this is prophesied in the Bible. It says, Jerusalem will be trodden underfoot until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And uh, so in our lifetime, we are witnessing prophecy. And uh, it's amazing when you look at the Bible how specific it is in regards to these matters and how true they are, how they are fulfilled by God. So in essence, what you are saying, when we see those detailed accuracy of the fulfillment of these prophecies, it's definitely telling us that the Bible is the Word of God. I don't think there should be any question about that. I mean, can you mention another religious book that has prophecy in it? You can look at the Hindu Vedas, there's no prophecy there. You can look at the writings of Confucius, there's no prophecies there. You can look at Buddha, there's no... You can even look at Islam, and there's no prophecies there in the Quran either. The Bible is the only book that has such precise and exact prophecy. And there can be no dispute that these prophecies were written hundreds of years before, but yet they came to fruition according to Scripture. Okay, Pastor Murphy, as we uh, continue on our topic tonight, why we should believe the Bible is the Word of God and why we believe the Bible is the Word of God. Here's uh, a question for you. Would you agree that the indestructibility of the Bible proves that it is the Word of God? You know, there are many who have tried through the ages to destroy, completely wipe out the Word of God, but the Word of God had stood down through the ages. Well, uh, Brother Erskine, I, a verse of Scripture comes immediately to mind where the Lord said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my Word shall not pass away. Uh, throughout the ages, there has been a systematic attempt to undermine Scripture, to destroy Scripture, uh, but it has always survived, and it always will survive, because God not only has given us His Word, God will preserve His Word. Uh, one example comes to mind, the infidel and the atheist Voltaire, who said that in his lifetime he would have destroyed the Bible. Uh, but it's amusing that uh, Voltaire died, and the very house in which Voltaire lived became the very house where the Bible was printed using the Gutenberg uh, printer. So the man that claimed he would destroy the world by a very a streak of irony, uh, God, as it were, reversed that and used his very home to become the main means of producing the scriptures. The Bible is totally indestructible. The Catholic Church tried to destroy it, burn it, but yet it has survived the wrath of Catholicism. Every 
nation that have tried to destroy the Bible, the Bible survives and will survive because God's word is eternal, it's already settled in heaven, and God will preserve his word. Okay, Pastor Murphy, we have a question here. We have a WhatsApp message. Um, it states, We know that the Bible is the word of God. Not only contains the word of God, but all the Bible is the word of God. How can we approach First Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12? Chapter 7? Yeah, it said, um, But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother had a wife that believeth not, oh, okay. and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her yeah. away. Well, that's a simple, uh, it's a very simple um, answer to that question. The Apostle Paul is, is saying that when the Lord was on earth, the Lord did not address this matter. Uh, of course, you would know that our Lord addressed the matter of a monogamous marriage, that marriage is permanent. Uh, he made them male and female, that no man should, what God has joined together, no man should put asunder. Uh, that marriage is intended to be permanent. Our Lord addressed that particular matter. But the matter that Paul is dealing with in chapter 7 uh, is not a matter that our Lord addressed when he was on earth. So that's what, what Paul means. Paul is saying that you know the Lord did not really address this matter. So I am giving you uh, here what uh, the Lord has directed me to, to give to you. So he's, Paul is not contradicting Scripture. But clearly the matter that Paul is dealing with, if you read later down the chapter, he's not dealing with a matter that our Lord has given any information about. So the information that is now given by Paul, God has now given Paul additional information to deal with a specific problem that was existent within the Corinthian church. I hope that helps the, 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 uh, uh, the listener. Brother Erskine, let me uh, add, if I may add to what we've been saying already. We've talked about the testimony of Christ, that that in itself is the greatest confirmatory evidence that the Bible is the Word of God because of his attitude towards the Word. We've talked about the matter of fulfilled prophecy. Uh, this is not the law of probability in place here. This is complete accuracy and specificity you find in, uh, in, in Scripture. But take the evidence of archaeology. There has never been an archaeological discovery that's ever controverted uh, what the Bible uh, teaches or what the Bible states. Uh, as a matter of fact, every time the archaeologists have gone into the bowels of the earth and they've come up with anything that... Uh, it always confirms scripture. It always there's nothing there that they've ever found that contradicts what the Bible, whether it be a place, whether it be an event, uh, whether it be a city, uh, whether it be a river, whether it be a mountain, uh, whether it be some kind of a uh, bivouac where uh, idolatry is practiced, and and then biblical names. It is fascinating and, and biblical titles that uh, have been discovered that what the Bible teaches and what the Bible taught uh, it had been confirmed. Uh, by archaeology. I just mentioned a, a few of these, for example. And by the way, I must say that even if it is not the specific reference to the, the, the Bible, clearly there was some kind of a common knowledge in respect to these matters that are mentioned. Take the creation story, for example. Uh, there are other creation stories out there. Uh, there is the Sumerian uh, uh, creation story and the Babylonian creation story. Uh, but the thing about the, the biblical one, it, the, the Bible is in contrast to these creation stories, is the elegance of the Bible and the, and, and the beauty of the Scripture. For example, in the creation story that comes out of Babylon, um, the earth is a part of the finite gods fighting each other. One god gets defeated, 
and he split in two, and the river Euphrates flowed of one eye, and the Tigris river flows out of the other. Humanity is made of blood of some evil god, etc. So the idea of creation is there, but notice the mythology that is also entered and the exaggeration. And then, of course, there's the Elba tablets where they got creation account. Um, again, it is striking. Uh, it talks about the heavens being created and the moons being created, and it also teaches that the crea- that the God created out of nothing. So clearly, there is in other um, cultures, other civilizations, there is an endorsement of of the biblical stories, not in a specific form, but at least it was some remnant of that knowledge that is contained. Take the flood, for example. Do you know that there are flood stories, universal flood stories in Greek history, in in Hindu history, in Chinese, the Mexicans and the Hawaiians? Uh, And you can go back to the Sumerians again and the Babylonians. The only thing that changes in these uh, flood stories, by the way, is that they're not called Noah. They're given different names. But the essential core teaching is there. For example, man is told to build a ship with specific dimensions. The gods are going to flood the earth and man is warned. Uh, he's supposed to build a boat and, uh, he, and then after he comes out of the boat, he offers a sacrifice. And then God responds by uh, expressing his remorse. Almost the Genesis story to the core. But again, there are levels of exaggeration and embellishment that you find in these stories. Archaeology. Uh, we can talk about names. Uh, for example, if we come to the New Testament, the the Quinti- um, Quirinius, uh, the Tetrarch mentioned in Acts chapter five, uh, archaeologists have discovered his name. Uh, Galileo, the proconsul in Acts chapter eighteen, again, he has been identified. Uh, we can talk about Erastus in Acts chapter nineteen, uh, excavating around Corinth. His name has been exhumed. Uh, Pilate is an inscription with Pilate on it. Uh, Caiaphas didn't know exactly where his uh, vault is today. Uh, when it comes to the tomb of Herod, it is there. And even the method of crucifixion in 1968, uh, it was actually discovered uh, and the site of Jerusalem where uh, one that was crucified, where the nails had actually gone right through the heels. So when you come to the scriptures, um, the, the spade of the archaeologists going into the very bowels of the earth has exhumed evidence that confirms scripture and verifies the historical data and the names of the places that the Bible talks about. So that in itself is showing you the historicity of the Bible and the Bible is profoundly accurate in terms of what it states and what it mentions in the Bible. So archaeology never contradicts the Bible? Absolutely not. It is said here that both archaeological evidences and other writings, the historical accounts of the Bible have been proven time and time again to be accurate and true. It is said, in fact, all the archaeological and manuscript evidence supporting the Bible make it the best document both, sorry, the best documented book from the ancient world. The fact that the Bible accurately and truthfully records historical events is a great indication of its truthfulness when dealing with religious subjects and doctrines and helps sustain its claim to be the very word of God. Exactly. I, let me just say, Brother Erskine, the problem today is not that there's not evidence, profound evidence, substantial evidence, conclusive evidence in the Bible. Man's problem today is a moral problem. It's not a head problem. It's not a mind problem. It's not an intellectual problem. Man 
in his attempt to get rid of his moral responsibility before God. He is trying to undermine Scripture in spite of the preponderance of evidence that proves the Bible is the Word of God. Man wants to live as he lives. He doesn't want to be restricted morally. He doesn't want to be told uh, that there are certain things outside the pale of God's will. He's bent on going his own way. He's a rebel at heart. And he's got to undermine the integrity of Scripture in order to excuse his lifestyle and to uh, be, uh, hold himself not accountable to, ni- to ni- any ultimate being. And the, all I would suggest to you that most people that c- criticize the Bible and complain about the Bible and talk about contradiction and corruption never ever read the Bible. Most of them have never even read the Bible. But they're getting the bandwagon because they too are rebels and they don't want to be held morally accountable before God. And the way to avoid that is to undermine the credibility of the Scripture by calling it into question and offering all kinds of uh, silly, specious uh, objections to Scripture which cannot be verified or proven. Thank you very much, Pastor Murphy. You are listening to That Stewart on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We are broadcasting at 1160 kHz AM, 92.3 FM, and you could also listen to us online at www.radiolighthouse.org. Pastor Murphy... We have to deal with um, this question here before we finish the program tonight. And here's the question. Is there a book in all the world that can be compared to the Bible in its beneficial influence upon mankind? I, I, I don't know if it, the audience would agree with me or not, but it has been pretty much substantiated that the scriptures, especially, I would say, the King James Version, has been the standard uh, as far as English language is concerned. There's nothing quite like it. It has it has actually shaped and formed the English language. Uh, but besides that, in terms of the influence it's had on the shaping and the forming of the English, English language, uh, think of the influence that the Bible has had in every single area of life. Think of education, for example. Uh, that's a topic that we can perhaps elaborate on and deal with at some other time. But we only have universal education today, not because government sat down and planned a universal process of, of uh, universal education. It, the, the motive for universal education started with the Reformation, where every man should have the Bible in his own language and understand the Scripture, uh, so it would not be limited to priests and theologians. That was the motivation for teaching people and giving the, the, the masses uh, the, uh, education. If we look in terms of medicine, uh, hospitals, universities, uh, all the major universities, whether in England or America, was founded to train ministers, whether it be Yale, whether it be uh, Harvard, uh, whether it be Princeton University, whether it be Oxford or Cambridge, all of them were initially formed to, to train men for the ministry. Look in the area of social reform in prisons. Uh, who is responsible for helping to improve the lives of uh, maniacs and, and uh, people who are mentally ill? Uh, again, read the history of that. You'll discover that with Christian uh, believers who were influenced by, by Scripture, that man was made in the image of God and that all people have dignity and equality. This was the motivation behind this kind of transformation of society. The vast Take slavery, for example. I mean, we in the Caribbean, we're very much aware of the problem of slavery because it's, it's rooted in our colonial past. But again, what brought an end to slavery? It was not uh, governments that just sat down and decided to end slavery. It was the influence of Christians who brought about that, tr- that transformation. So I cannot think of another book. Uh, think of music. 
my mind just comes to uh, to uh, the Messiah. It, it comes to all the great musicians, all the great musical works. The motivation behind that has been the influence of the Bible. On the think of science. That's another whole world we can talk about. Uh, that all the great scientists that laid the foundation for modern scientific uh, knowledge were, were Christians. Without any apology, they were Christians. Uh, I cannot think of another book on planet Earth that has had such a wholesome, salubrious influence on the human race, on civilization, than the scriptures themselves. Last week we talked about women. Uh, women especially should be thankful that there is such a thing called the Word of God in the Scripture because substantiates the Scripture that has been able to elevate women and brought them to such a high standard. Look at any Muslim country today where women can't, can't drive a vehicle. Some of them are um, prevented from edu- education. We have a young lady, I forgot her name, from uh, I think it was Afghanistan that was shot in her head. She's now become a main advocate for uh, the educator of women. But again, it's within the Western society that, that has ennobled this concept that she's now pushing it. But again, look in the Muslim world and see the state of women. And uh, some women can't even wear makeup. Uh, um, look, all I would say to people is to look at the countries that have come under the influence of the gospel, the Christian faith and the Bible. Compare those countries with countries that have not. And you see the vast difference between them in terms of elevating the dignity of man and especially raising the standard for women and putting them on par with men. Well, yeah. Erskine, I wanted to mention something else that I, um, in connection with evidence. Uh, and I, um, I see our time is going, so let me just mention this other one if yeah, I can. We have a question here. I'll take the question next. The other thing I'd like to mention to the audience that is profoundly amazing uh, when you think about it, think about the unity of the Bible that it's not just one book, it's a library of books, uh, 66 books. It has got over 40 different authors. It took about 1,500 years for that book to be compiled. Yet there's one consistent theme from Genesis to Revelation, and it has to do with God creating and God redeeming man. There are three different languages, the Greek language, the Hebrew language, and smatterings of the Aramaic language. Uh, these people came from different backgrounds, education, etc., etc. Occupations, different occupations. You've got different forms. You've got poetry, you've got history, you've got parables, you've got allegories, you've got uh, apolytic uh, um, literature, you've got epic uh, literature, you've got um, allegories in there as well. And then there's only one main theme, the theme of the entire Bible from beginning to the end running through the scriptures is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, coming to be uh, man's Redeemer. And there's only one message, that the God that created man, loves man, will send a Redeemer so that man may be forgiven and pardoned. So the problem with man is given, but the solution is also given. And running through all of those books, they're all pointing to one person and one person only. The Messiah is going to come, and he is going to pay a price for man's sin, and he is going to bring redemption uh, that was promised from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when our Lord said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and thy seed. He shall bruise thy head, uh, bruise thy heel, and thou shalt crush his head. That is the proto-evangelium, the first promise given to the Bible that the Messiah was going to come. And from Genesis chapter 3, right through to Revelation, one theme, 40 different authors, 100, uh, 1,500 years, three different languages, and it doesn't matter you've got this consistent unity that is there that would confirm clearly that there's one author behind this book, and that is Jehovah God, 
who is superintending and making sure that the scriptures come to us as he intended. Okay, I'll take the question. Okay, we have two questions here, Pastor Murphy. Sure. The first one is a text message from Antigua. It says, How would one know that they have the literal word of God? Well, I'm not too sure what the, uh, the questioner means by that. Um, what I would say to you is this. The manuscript evidence for the Bible of what we have it today, there is no other ancient historical book that has the supporting manuscript evidence as the Bible. Let me, let me use an illustration. I'm not too sure if the audience is aware that the New Testament alone has 3,500 manuscripts to support its teachings. You take any other historical document in ancient history, uh, and you will be amazed that there's no comparison. Take uh, Caesar's Gallic Wars, for example. Uh, uh, you only have about 10 copies of Caesar's Gallic Wars, and between the time Caesar wrote them until it was found, there are 900 years difference between when he, when he wrote those books uh, on the wars until it was discovered 900 years. You take the scriptures, for example. You've got 3,500 copies and in addition to that, within a very short time frame, some going back at the 2nd century to the 3rd and 4th century. So there's no comparison whatsoever. Now, if we can believe Caesar's Gallic Wars and Tacitus histories, which have not even a, 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 a smidgen of the support evidence, uh, support documentation, but nobody questions Caesar's Gallic Wars, nobody questions Tacitus' writings. So why do we now question the, the preponderance of evidence that we have and the small gap between when the Bible is written and these, 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 uh, these particular manuscripts we have uh, should make it very, very clear that if we can believe history, we should have no problem believing that we have within our hands the Word of God. Thank you, Pastor Murphy. And we have uh, another question here. And it said, Why are there so many translations if the Bible is really God's Word? Well, let me just say to you that that is not a good argument, that if the Bible is the Word of God, therefore we should not have translations. Remember that when the Bible was written, it was written in Greek and Hebrew with smatterings of Aramaic. Now, you don't speak Greek. You don't know Greek. You don't know you know you don't, you don't know Hebrew either. No, you know Aramaic. I you know, uh, I've had two years of it, but I, I am not a person that could speak it. Uh, so here we are in the context of of the society in which we live, or maybe a, a Muslim country, or maybe in a French speaking country. We have the Greek manuscripts. We have the Hebrew manuscripts. They have to be translated into a language that people understand. And by the way, let me point out to you that. When the New Testament was written, it was not written in classical Greek. It was written in Koine Greek. And Koine Greek is the, the, the Greek of the average man in the street. Uh, as a matter of fact, when it was discovered, they thought that there was some kind of heavenly language until they discovered that the same language of the New Testament is a language that was found in the ordinary uh, language of people, like receipts and, and documents, etc., etc. Now, that brings me to the point where, take the King James Version of the Bible, it's written in 1611. Certainly there have been changes in the English language in 1611. We're now living in 2018. That's almost 400 years. The English language has changed. That has made it necessary that we change certain words within the King James Version to bring it up to date so the ordinary man needs to understand it. The whole purpose of the Bible is to put it in the hands of the ordinary man that he can comprehend the Scriptures. Uh, we were not brought up in, on Shakespearean language 
So it's important that as the language changes and word meaning changes, it should be appropriate that those words be, be, be changed so that the modern man can understand what the Bible is teaching. I should not have to, every time I need to read the Bible, go into a dictionary or refer to some kind of a lexicon to find out what this word means. I should be able to read the Bible and comprehend the Bible. So part of the reason why there have been these translations is to modernize uh, the scriptures, the, 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 what you call today the New King James Version. Uh, all that is take, done is taking out the old archaic words like uh, saith and thus and thou, etc., etc., and some words that have changed the meaning considerably. Um, the word prevent, for example, doesn't mean the same thing as it meant when the King James was written. Uh, so that is why these versions have been modernized. But let me make a caution here. One of the dangers of the modern translations is that some of them are not translations, they're paraphrases. Uh, they're not literal translations, word-for-word translations. Sometimes they're what you call thought translation or dynamic translations. Rather than give you the words, they give you the concept. But we believe in the verbal inspiration of the Bible, that the entire body of Scripture, words, tenses, uh, plura- plurals, etc., were inspired. And uh, therefore, we've got to be very careful that we're not getting a paraphrase as opposed to Scripture. The other thing I'd like to say about modern translations, because there are so many, we have been robbed of that discipline of memorizing the Bible. When, once we had a, a standard Bible, we all knew, we all had a tendency to memorize the Bible. Today, there's so many. That discipline of memorizing Scripture is almost gone, and that has been part of the detriment of all of these modern versions that are coming in. But I do not discount all the modern versions. Uh, I do feel that there's need for the Bible to be modernized in terms of the language, because we are not speaking Shakespearean language. We don't understand. As a matter of fact, I remember in, in school I did Chaucer, Nuns Priest Tale. And I didn't have a clue what that English meant. I also did uh, Julius Caesar and um, uh, I think it's Midnight Summer Dream, whatever. But again, the language, I had to be constantly having a, a vocabulary on the side of the book. I had to be constantly going back to that to find what, what it meant. So I think there's a legitimate reason why we have to upgrade and modernize uh, our translations in order to give the average man the book. The average man should not have to come to me as a pastor to find out what this word means. That defeats the whole purpose of the original intention of the Bible. The average man should be able to read the Scripture and understand the Scripture. And that is why we have some of these modern translations. Pastor Murphy, our time is moving rapidly. But could you give just a brief explanation what inspiration means? The, the word inspiration uh, comes from a Greek word, uh, two words, one for God and one for breathe. So the word inspiration really means God breathe. And what uh, the writer is saying, that the scripture is as though God expired the scripture, that God, the, the words of the Bible are what God intended. If God could speak, that's what, exactly what God would speak to us. So that's what the word inspiration means, that it is God breathe. And what he's referring to is that the... Holy Spirit uh, superintended the writing of Scripture and gave these men exactly what God intended to be written. Now, God did not dictate. There are some verses in Scripture where clearly God dictated. But God used the people's personalities, their vocabulary, uh, their conditions, uh, their environment, their background. That's why Peter's writings are completely different than Paul and why John's are also different than Paul because their unique vocabulary and personalities were used. But if you believe in one verse of the scripture, you have no problem 
accepting the Bible. In the beginning, God created. If there is a God and he has the power he has, he has that power to superintend the scripture so that he can give us a scripture as he intended and keep error from being in the scriptures. He has that power and we believe that he has done that. In closing, Pastor Murphy, if we truly believe that the Bible is the word of God, what should man's response be to it? Well, look, if, if this scripture is God's word as we believe, we should treasure it for no, not about that. But not only that, we should read it. And above all, we should obey. Because if this is God speaking to us, what a privilege that the Almighty God should condescend to communicate with us and give us His will and His word. Uh, it would be audacious of us uh, to have this great treasure and treat it with such disrespect. We ought to treasure the word, obey the word, live the word, and of course, give out the word and preach the word. Thank you very much, Pastor Murphy. We have now come to the end of that shoot for tonight. And it was a pleasure being on the program tonight. And we would like to thank all of our listeners who have taken the time out to join us on that shoot. Thanks to those who have written in or called in. We do appreciate you doing so. And we do trust that you will join us next week, God's willing, for another edition of That's Jews. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth. Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.